0: Hello listeners, welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries' Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim, and I'm the host of this program. hope that you were able to live through the confusion in the world today by holding on to and meditating on Jesus's words. On June 12th, one of the deadliest mass shootings in the United States history occurred in a nightclub in Orlando, Florida. An American-born man of Afghan descent named Omar Mateen carried an assault rifle and a pistol into the nightclub holding about 300 people around 2 a.m and started shooting at everyone in sight. The standoff went on for about three hours and finally ended when the police crashed into the building with an armored vehicle and stun grenades and killed the shooter. The shooting rampage left 50 people dead, including the shooter, wounding 53 others. This was a horrific event. This event was not just an ordinary shooting. It occurred inside a gay nightclub, and it's gaining more attention because the shooter targeted the gay and lesbian community. This event is being investigated as a terror attack because the shooter was an American-born Muslim who had pledged allegiance to the ISIS. It is also looked as a hate crime towards the gay and lesbian community. The shooter's father released a statement saying that the cause of this event had nothing to do with the Muslim religion but only with his son's feelings towards the gay and lesbian community. It does not matter what the reason is, whether it is terror or a hate crime, this event should have never occurred. We will continue our discussion after our first song.
1: pieces broken and scattered in mercy gathered mended empty-handed but not forsaken I've been set free I've been set say You take our weakness You set your treasure In jars of clay So take this heart, Lord I'll be your vessel The world to see Your life in me oh, Amazing grace How sweet
0: States was met with a difficult situation due to an event that was not supposed to occur. But one can think for a moment that it was fortunate that the shooter was not a Christian. If the shooter was Christian, because of the bad history that the Christian community has had with a gay and lesbian community, the aftermath of this event would have been immensely hard to deal with but I thought about in what aspect my fellow Christian brothers and sisters are supposed to view this event. It is wrong if you happen to think thoughts like, it's okay since it was the gay and lesbians dying while drinking and partying, or this was God's judgment on them, or even it's good that they died. We do not know if this was truly a judgment from God, but this is not a way we Christians should think. Jesus speaks to us in Luke chapter 13 in case we ever do feel that way. It says in Luke chapter 13 verse 1 through 5, Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We tend to think that when something horrible happens to someone else, or something unusual happens, it is because they are being punished for their sins. Of course, there are times when this is true, but it is not true all the time. This is what Jesus is telling us in Luke chapter 13. He is telling us that they did not meet this fate because of greater sins than others. But then he tells us something especially meaningful. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus repeats this first twice in Luke chapter 13 verses 1 through 5. Let's think closely again about what Jesus is telling us. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This means that if you do not repent, your end will be the same as these people. It doesn't matter how they will die, they will die. But they will not perish because they are greater sinners, they will perish because they do not repent. What is the point Jesus is trying to make? To perish or to die does not depend on how great or small the person's sin is. It depends on if they repented or not. We as Christians should not look at this horrible shooting event and think it's good that they died, that they were being punished for their sins. We all live having sinned in our lives. They are people that lived without knowing that they were sinning. Did any of us search for God in Jesus Christ to become righteous on our own? Did any of us walk towards Jesus' cross on our own? Did God not come in flesh to us who were living in sin? Did He not come in light to shine the light of life to us who were dying in darkness so that we can move towards the light? We did not repent because we are good or righteous people. We as Christians should see this event and think they did not know about grace. It is unfortunate that they did not get a chance to repent their sins before being killed. Now before it's too late, we should pray that the grace that was given to us should be given to them, praying that they will turn to our Lord after repenting of their sins.
2: The calm the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me. Not because of who I am, but because of what You've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who.
3: coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Struggle for Love, Part 2, based on Genesis chapter 29 verses 15 through 35. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Tim Keller. Now we have Leah. And Leah is now married to Jacob. And what are we told here about Leah? Now, just as artistically, I mean, I mean when I I say artistically, the narrator is an unbelievable artist. I hope you can begin to see that as the weeks go on by. And with the greatest economy of style, and with just a few strokes, we learn all about Leah's life. What do we know about Leah up to now? Verse 17, it says, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and very beautiful. Now, one of the problems for translators is this word that is used in Hebrew to describe her eyes. And it's a word that means breakable or fragile, and it's a tough word. To, it's hard to figure out what the narrator is really getting at. But unfortunately, most translators don't do, I think, probably what they should do, because the way this translator here uh, translates it, it says that uh, Leah had weak eyes. Well, here's my point, or here's my question. Is that really what the sentence is getting at? Is that the point of the sentence? Does it say, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel could see a long, long way? No. It's not talking about their sight. It's talking about their appearance. Either she had crossed eyes or she had protruding eyes or something. But here was the point. Here's the point. Leah was unattractive. Leah was homely. And she grew up in the shadow of a younger sister who was utterly stunning. And that's the reason why Laban has to unload her like this. The only way I'm ever going to get Leah married to anybody is I'm going to have to trick somebody into it, otherwise I'm going to be stuck with her forever. Leah is the unwanted one, Leah is the ugly duckling, Rachel's the swan, Leah is the one that's been rejected, Leah is the one that people have looked right through, Leah is the one that's been ignored for years and years and years, and that is the way you can understand why Leah, not Jacob, really is is his soulmate. Because look and see, starting at verse 31 and following, what Leah has done to deal with a big hole in her heart? What has she done to handle the brokenness in her life from all those years of rejection? Every time she starts to have a son, it's one of the most plaintive series of of sentences in the Bible, every time she she has a son, she chooses a Hebrew word for the name that expresses her longing for Jacob. So Reuben is taken from a word that means to see because what she's saying is maybe now finally I'll be visible to my husband. Maybe he won't just look through me. Secondly, Simeon comes from the word to hear because he's, she says, now finally maybe he, he's, my husband will listen to me, instead of just saying, oh yeah, yeah, Leah, whatever, whatever. And when Levi comes along, it's the word for attached, what she's saying at every point she's trying to say, now finally will my husband love me? I'm having all these babies, I'm having all these sons, I'm being the perfect wife, at least according to the cultural standards of the time, I'm having all these children, I'm being the perfect wife. What is she doing? How is she handling the hole in her heart, the inner emptiness in her life? The same way that Jacob handled the fact that he was preferred, uh, that Esau was preferred to him, the same way that Leah is handling the fact that Rachel was preferred to her for years and years, she is looking for one true love. She says, if this man would love me, if I could be a wife of this husband, happy mother and wife, mother of children, if my, if, then I'd be somebody. Then I'd be visible, see? A little more of a significance thing here. Then I'd be worth something. Then I'd be listened to. Then I'd be important. But she's in hell. This is worse than if she never was married. Because the one person on whom she has put her heart, The one person to whom she is functionally looking, as Ernest Becker would say, for redemption, is in the very arms of the woman in whose shadow she's grown up her entire life. Unbelievable. She's in hell. Laban, Jacob, she's in hell. But, now, before we go on and see what God does about that hell, we've got a couple questions and just a couple questions to answer, but we've also got a couple lessons to draw. First of all, there's a couple questions that always come up at this point. I'll be brief, but they're important. Some of you out there, because this is New York City, some of you out there are saying, oh, This entire narrative is so offensive to me. This is what I hate about the Bible. It's primitive and unlightened times, talking about women being bought and sold by men. The whole thing is offensive. The whole thing, you know, I, I can hardly handle. Well, just for a second, listen. Robert Alter himself says, If you think that the book of Genesis, which does mention slavery, polygamy, bride purchase, primogeniture, you know, the older son always preferred over the younger son. He says, if you think the genesis writer, the narrator, is supporting these institutions, you haven't figured out how to read. Because at every single place, and it's almost every chapter, at every single place where you have polygamy and slavery and bride purchase and not that sort of thing, in every place where these institutions are deployed, they bring devastation, and if you think that therefore, the Genesis narrator is somehow, uh, you know, upholding or condoning these practices you haven't learned how to read. And, and the other thing I'd say for those of you who are saying, well, the Bible's so primitive here and, I, you know, this is, we've gotten beyond this. Uh, let me descend into sarcasm for just a second. Of course, I would never do this without your permission. Uh, but so let me just descend for a moment. Isn't it great that we live today in modern, liberated New York? And we don't live back in those times where a woman's looks could just set the course of her entire life. Uh, How her life even turned out would be almost completely determined by how wonderful she looked physically. I mean, isn't it great that we've gotten beyond that? Okay, now I'm I'm done. And what I'm trying to say is, how in the world could you imagine you could get beyond the Bible? Fundamental human nature, fundamental human problems, fundamental human questions are the same. Another question that comes up, you say I'm looking for the heroes and I can't find any. You know, I'm reading it. Okay, where are the heroes? Isn't this ancient literature? Aren't these these wonderful ancient documents? Doesn't every culture, you know, the Greeks, the Romans, the, the Egyptians? I mean, everybody had, you know, the, you know the Jews too. Here, all these ancient cultures had these ancient stories in which you have heroes that show us and uh, the virtues that we can emulate. Right? I read the Book of Virtues and I saw there were biblical stories in there along with Greek and Roman stories. I'm looking through here and. I don't see any heroes. There's no good people. Well, that's not completely true, but I don't see anybody here to emulate. Well, you're right and you're wrong. And you're concerned. You're right. You're right. In that all ancient cultures, in general, that was how they taught virtue. Alistair McIntyre's famous book, After Virtue, points out, that in all ancient cultures, you didn't teach values, by the way, in, in school in abstract ways. You gave people stories and these legends and these myths of these great heroes and these great people who emulate the various virtues, and through those stories, we're able to enter in and we're able to uh, imitate them. And so you're right in saying that all the other, you know, cultures and religions, and they always had these stories, and. And 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 then that was the rule in the ancient world, but you're wrong in thinking that the Bible is like that, because the Bible is completely different. And biblical faith is utterly different, because see, all other religions have God at the top of a ladder, as it were, we talked about this last week, God at the top of a ladder, and the ladder, our steps, are the virtues. And that if you give your sacrifices and if you're kind and you're generous to the poor and you are moral and you're hardworking and you're honest and you you live the virtues, you can move on up the ladder and you can be blessed by God or the gods. And every other religion was like that. But the biblical religion, the biblical faith, gives us a God who's not like that. Over and over and over again in these stories, we see weak people, messed up people, people who don't seek God's grace, who don't deserve God's grace, who continually resist God's grace, and and don't even appreciate God's grace after they've been saved by it. People into whose life God has to come by sheer grace, intervening, you see. It's utterly different. Utterly different. And that's the reason why you're right in noticing there's no heroes in here. But that is the moral of the story. The moral of the story is that morals won't get you into God's story. But God has to come into your story God is a God of grace, the real God. Now, what are the lessons we learn at this point? And the lessons are twofold, and they're pretty profound. The first lesson we're supposed to learn from here, this especially in the most vivid way, when Jacob wakes up in the morning, it was Leah. We're being taught something. That in all of life, through every event, through every aspect of your life, there always will be a ground note running, a ground note of cosmic disappointment, and you're not going to lead a wise life until you know that. See, Jacob goes to bed with the one. I finally got the one. The one thing, the one person who's going to make my life okay. But what we're told literally in the Hebrew, it says, but in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Now, I love Leah, and I'm protective of her, and I love what we're about to learn about Leah. But for a moment, I got to tell you this. Leah represents something. Every time you get started into a relationship, every time, you get start, every time you move into a marriage, every time you get into a job, every time you get into, into a new project, any time you get into some new uh, pursuit, and you think, this finally is going to make my life right, I want you to know, in the morning, it's always Leah. You go to bed with Rachel, in the morning, it will always, always be Leah. And nobody put it better than C.S. Lewis, who said, most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something this world can never give them. There are all sorts of things in the world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, these are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning will ever satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips and so on. I'm speaking of the very best possible ones. There is always something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job. But it, it, the thing that we thought was going to be in the center of it, always evades us. In the morning, it's always Leah. And if you get married or if you get into jobs, if you, if you don't realize that it will always be Leah in the morning, that there is something that you want in your heart that nothing in this world can satisfy that if you go on trying to discard the things you have to get better ones because that one will have it. Or if you start to get mad at the world and say, the world's a cheat and I guess all of my hopes have been, it's been stupid and you try to harden your heart so you're not in agony anymore. Or if you pound yourself saying, I'm a failure. All those things, the way of the fool, the way of the cynic, the way of the self-hater, the way, those are all because you won't admit that in the morning it's always Leah means that the one true love you really want isn't her or him or any human being. And you know what's interesting here is this is a mistake that can be made across the board. It doesn't matter whether you're a conservative or a liberal or something in the middle. Because if you're the liberal type and you're into apocalyptic hookups, but you could be a conservative type. Look at Leah, the epitome of traditional family values. She wants to have babies. She wants to be a good wife. She wants to, you know, she's going to be somebody because finally I'm married and I've got children and I've got a husband. Now I'm somebody. That's the conservative approach. You know what? If you put family in place of God, if you put sex in place of God, it doesn't matter. Across the board, you will be dashed. You will be decimated. You will, in the end, have absolutely nothing. And that's what we're being told. Isn't that amazing? Now, what's the hope? What, what's the solution? If that's what's behind the, behind the desire for one true love, and that's the disillusionment that accompanies, in general, the pursuit of one true love, what's the answer? Where, where can this desire be fulfilled? And the answer is, look at what happens to Leah. Look what happens in her and to her. Or Another way to put it is, look what God does inside her, what, what God does in her, and then what God does for her. What God does in her and for her. Number one, in her. Do you see an interesting progression? Even though she is calling out uh, and saying, "If my husband, my husband, see, my, my, the husband's the savior. The husband's the savior. Oh, of course she wouldn't say that, and you don't say that. Oh, you, you would never let yourself say such a thing. But Becker's right. You're looking to the one to make yourself feel okay, to make yourself feel meaningful, to give some sense to your life, to make yourself feel valuable. And yet, she's calling on the Lord, too. She's saying, the Lord has helped me. She's fighting. She wants a relationship with the Lord, and she's using the covenant name Yahweh, not the generic name Elohim. How did she know about that? See, all other people besides Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would know of God in the general sense of being Elohim, the God at the top of the ladder only Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, people like that, who God enters into a covenant relationship with, God gives his personal name, his covenant name, Yahweh, which means, is the name that goes along with the story of salvation, that he's a God of grace, that he's going to come down, that he's going to intervene in our lives. He's not going to wait for us to somehow achieve. She's heard about this. She's using the name Lord, the Lord. Commentators all find it fascinating that she's not just asking somehow for God to help her have babies, she's on the one hand in an idolatrous grip. She's made an idol, a a pseudo-savior out of family, and yet she's calling for the Lord. She's trying to get a relationship with this God of grace at the same time. But finally, the fourth kid, breakthrough, do you see what happens? The Fourth child comes along, and the word Judah means praise, and there's no mention of her husband. And there's no mention of any, even the child, in a sense. There's even a kind of defiance. And she says, this time, what does she, what does she mean by this time? This time's different. This time, I'm going to praise the Lord. Look, 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 look. And she stopped having children. Almost the implication is, I don't need to have children anymore. I'm not going to work at it like I was. Why? She took the deepest, deepest, passionate desires of her heart, took them away from her husband and put them on the Lord. Jacob and Laban, those men had stolen her life. They'd been stealing her life for years. But the moment she did that, she took her life back. There's liberation. And she realized she'd be a lousy wife, and you will be a lousy wife or a lousy husband, whether you're married or you're not married, if you don't do the same thing. Or maybe I should ask you this. What is the thing, regardless of what you tell me you actually believe, what your doctrine is, regardless of what you believe, I want to know from you, what is the thing that you need to take the deepest, deepest adoration of your heart off of and put on God so you can get your life back and you can get freedom and you can handle anything? Well, why did she do that? She did that not because it was just a psychological subjective experience. She, what, was, what happened in her was because of what had happened to her. What happens to her when Judah is, is born? She can't probably know, though. She might intuit it. What is God doing for her when Judah is born? Who is Judah? The, the narrator knows. The writer of Genesis knows. Because in chapter 48, near the very end of the book, there's a prophecy that comes and says, Judah is the one through whom the king will come. Judah is the one through whom the scepter will come. And what does that mean? Let me put it in a nutshell. God looks down at a beautiful woman and an ugly woman. God looks down at a woman who's had a designer life, and everybody in the world has always wanted, and looks at one who he looks at the girl nobody wanted, nobody. He looked at the girl who's unloved, who's unlovely, and he says, "You're going to be the mother of Jesus." Verse 31 says, "When the Lord saw Leah was not loved, let me paraphrase it: He loved her. He's the true bridegroom." The Word of God says. He's the true love. He's the only spouse that will fulfill you because he's the only one who won't let you down. You know, Becker puts it just perfectly, and he says, No human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. However much we may idealize and idolize him, he inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfections. If your partner is your all, any shortcoming in that your partner becomes a major threat to you. What do you want when you elevate your partner to this position? You want to be rid of your faults, the feeling of nothingness. You want to be justified, to know your existence has not been in vain. You want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, human beings can't give you that. And she's free from her idolatry of traditional family values because God is the true bridegroom. But here's the other thing we've got to notice. The reason why she becomes the mother of Jesus is because, not because just God likes underdogs, is that it? She's the sentimental favorite? No, because she is a picture of how God is going to save the world. And here's how he's going to save the world. He's not a strong God who says, strong people, if you live virtuous lives, you can come up to heaven. He comes down. He dies on the cross. He fulfills the requirements for you. Jesus Christ says, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I am the latter. I'm going to live the life you should have lived and die the death you should have died. If you know you're so weak that you need a Savior who died for you. You're so bad that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save you. If you're a sophisticated New Yorker and you can't say, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved by grace, you're too proud for this incredible salvation that comes into the world through Leah and her boy. God gives Leah, the rejected one, the weak one, to be the mother of Jesus because that is how the gospel works. The gospel saves people, not who are strong, the gospel saves people who will admit they're sinners and that they're weak. And what ends up happening? Who goes back? Jacob, the son who's not loved and who was a deceiver, but now he's humbled into some decent character, and Leah, the girl who's not loved, and they're the ones who bring salvation to the world because that's how the gospel works. Can you handle it? Can you handle it? What a God. He looks at the one without the designer life and said, That's how my salvation's going to work. That's how my son is going to look. You're the mom. Number one, do you see it? If you've been rejected by some human being who you thought was going to love you and make it all right, one of the reasons I think God brings the messianic seed to Leah is because Jesus is going to grow up rejected, lonely, constantly misunderstood, ultimately rejected in the end. God himself comes into the world and knows what it's like to be rejected by all human beings and says, I'll give you a relationship with me. If you see what I've done for you, you can experience my love in such a way that you can handle that. Don't let marriage throw you. If you really wanna be married and you're not, it's okay, Uh, you're after a good thing, but you won't be ready for it unless you see this. If you're unhappily married and really mad about it, it's good to want your marriage to be better, but you're gonna put too much weight on it unless you see this. Do You see, if you feel ugly, not just physically, but in any way, don't you see, a God at the top of the steps, you better be good and good looking and smart and attractive to make it to the top, but a God who is the steps, Jesus Christ who becomes a man acquainted with grief, a man who's dejected, a man who's ugly, it says in Isaiah 53 and 52. We could hardly look upon him. Jesus Christ became weak and ugly so that when we believe in him, his righteousness is imputed to us. Do you realize that the Bible insists that though you might look like Leah to God in Jesus Christ, you always look like a Rachel? Let these things pass into your life, and you can take your life back. Let us pray. We pray, Father, that you would help us understand the gospel and apply it to our lives in the various ways that this text uh, can be applied. It's very difficult for me as the preacher, because it has so many applications, to uh, bring it home to the, the varied situations that are represented by the people in this room. But would your Holy Spirit do that? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. Coming up next, we introduce you to our new program, The Lord is My Shepherd.
4: Hello, listeners. This is Jim Hughes with The Lord is My Shepherd program. Which psalm do you think is one of the most loved and memorized by people? There are several that come to my mind, but no one will object that the one most loved and well-known to many people is Psalm 23. Just as Psalm 23 is very well-known, the writer of Psalm 23 is also very well-known. Yes, that's right. It's David. And the fact that this David was king of Israel, but also a shepherd of sheep as a young boy, is also very well known. Because of that, some people think that David must have written this Psalm 23 when he was a shepherd. But others say that this Psalm contains some difficult words that could not have come from a young shepherd boy's life experience. So, they think that he must have written it in his later life. And some Bible exegetists also say that David wrote this psalm during the severe trial he faced when he was fleeing from his son, Absalom, or right after that incident. However, the Bible doesn't say anything about it. We cannot know exactly when he wrote this psalm. Knowing when he wrote this psalm could be important because we could know under what circumstances he wrote it. However, there is something else that's also important, and that is that David was a shepherd himself. When we read this Psalm 23, we picture in our minds the green pastures and the sheep and the shepherd. Therefore, many times, we think we understand this Psalm 23 in an abstract way. However, when a shepherd who has experience in shepherding the sheep reads this Psalm, it has a different feel to it. A few years ago, I met a Christian, a North Korean defector, who used to shepherd sheep. His understanding of Psalm 23 was quite different than my understanding of it. Therefore, I think that if we meditate on this Psalm 23 from the shepherd's point of view, we will be touched and blessed in a different way than when we thought of it abstractly. In The Lord is My Shepherd program, we will see Psalm 23 with the eyes of a shepherd. I want to share that this program was inspired by the book A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller. The title of this program is taken from the opening line of the psalm, The Lord is my shepherd. David, who confessed that the Lord God is his shepherd, must have been able to so confess because he knew very well the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. If he had had a different job, other than being a shepherd, for example, if he had the job of a carpenter or a potter, he might have started Psalm 23 with different words. The Lord is my carpenter foreman, or maybe the Lord is my potter. David expressed God by comparing him to the figure that he knew best. David knew very well that the lives of the sheep were in the hands of the shepherd. People say that the fate of the sheep depends on the type of the shepherd. Some shepherds would look after their sheep in a kind and gentle way, sometimes applying their intellect and sometimes acting bravely and in a sacrificial way. In this type of care, sheep grow well and very satisfactorily. However, under some shepherds, sheep grow fighting each other suffering hunger, and undergoing hardships. If you were the sheep, under what kind of shepherd would you like to grow? Should we think about this a little more? It's not by chance that the Lord God is compared to a shepherd by King David, because Jesus, who is God, describes himself as a shepherd. And he is not just a shepherd, but a good shepherd. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 11 it reads I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep that's right Jesus is the good shepherd Jesus summarized the heart of a good shepherd with one thought what is it that's right it's laying down his life for the sheep now on the other hand how would a shepherd that is not a good shepherd be this is explained in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, which reads, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Jesus describes a hired hand in contrast with the good shepherd. He says that he's not actually even a shepherd, He's in the position of a shepherd, but he is a hired hand and cannot be called a shepherd. It is said that when danger comes, this type of hired hand runs away to save his life, abandoning the sheep because they are not his own sheep. Then, those sheep are left to be plundered and lose their lives. Then Jesus explains again about the good shepherd, and this is the part that we need to think about more deeply Again, from John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. What kind of shepherd is a good shepherd? It's not someone that simply lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd knows his sheep. And that is like the way God knows His only Son, Jesus Christ. And how Jesus Christ knows His Father, God. Can you imagine how deep that knowing would be? We use the term Trinity to describe the three persons of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. These three are each different, but at the same time, they are all one. I'm not trying to share the theology of the Trinity with you right now, just that the intimacy that Jesus is explaining between the sheep and the shepherd is the same intimacy found within the Trinity, where even though each person in the Trinity is different, they are one and the same. That is why when we confess the Lord is my shepherd, it's a confession that the Lord, my God, is the one that makes me grow. It's confessing that my destiny is in His hands, because He knows me. He knows me much better than I know myself. And because He knows me better than I know myself, He has a perfect plan for me, and He guides me according to His plan. He is a shepherd that lays down His life, not sparing His own life for the sheep to accomplish that plan. God, the Creator, who created all things, and the universe runs without an inch of error under the perfect reign of our God. His glorious reign is deeply pervasive in all creation. I pray that you and I will confess daily that the One who reigns over the whole universe is my Shepherd. Thanks for listening, and please join me next time for more from The Lord is My Shepherd.
0: chapter 18 verse 23 God said do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked declares the Lord God rather than that he should turn from his ways and live when an evil person or a sinner is dying due to their sins God is not happy if he was happy for these reasons then he would not save us from our sins we were all sinners and evil beings but it gives him pleasure to see those sinners turn their life around and walk towards the light to receive eternal life. It is for that reason God sent His only Son for us. He allowed His Son to suffer and die on the cross. He cared more about us sinners turning our lives around and living for Him than His Son dying on the cross. If you understand this grace of God, you must spread this news of God's grace to those who do not know. It should not end with just us repenting our own sins and going to heaven alone. Jesus bled so that all of our sins will be washed away. We must try our best to speak of His grace every chance we get so that even one soul can be saved from their sins and walk away from their life of darkness. Homosexuality is a definite sin. This is something that God has decided That is why homosexuals must repent their sins, change their lives, and be born again. There are many homosexuals that change their ways after repenting their sins just like we have been living our lives for Jesus after repenting our sins. All sinners receive the same grace from God and are saved from Jesus' death on the cross. If we think that it is right for the sinners to die, then we probably have those thoughts due to feelings of pride hidden in our hearts. This is because we do not know the extent of what grace and what love we have received salvation. We are showing pride that we are saved. I hope that you always remember this. We must learn and follow the characteristic of God in His grace of loving all sinners. But loving all sinners does not mean that we must love their sins as well. We must not approve of their sins. The world that we live in today is confused about this idea. This world believes that if we love the sinners, then we must also love their sins, and if we hate their sins, then we must also hate the sinners. But look at our God. He hated sin, and the cross became the way to pay for our sins. But God loves all sinners. So He did not make the sinners pay for their sins, but He sent His Son without sin to die on the cross. A passage from Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because we receive all this love from God, we must in turn spread the love to all sinners that need to know of God's love and forgiveness. Let us finish today's broadcast of Unity in Christ by praying that we spread the good news about Jesus and the love of the cross to those who need his salvation. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time again next week, and God bless. Precious cornerstone, sure
5: foundation You are faithful to the end we are waiting on you jesus we believe you're all to us precious cornerstone sure foundation you are faithful to the end, we are waiting on you, Jesus, we believe.